As promised, Dr. Robin Cook, astrophysicist. Everyone loves listening to Robin. He certainly knows an awful lot about... Well, of course he does. He's qualified, isn't he? Curtin Institute of Radio Astronomy. But, of course, you are a research associate for UWA. That's right, yes. And you're a little bit jet-lagged this morning. I am. I've, I've spent two weeks in, in Europe, in Bristol, uh, in the UK, and I've, I've had a great time at a conference there talking about some precursor telescopes to the Square Kilometre Array. Okay. It's been really exciting. Something called the Meerkat Telescope. Meerkat. I love that word. Yeah, it's I love the that name. Meerkat Karoo Array Telescope. It's a very okay. <laughs> contrived to, acronym there. We're, we're going to have to have a lot of explanation about this. Yeah, so we, you'll find with astronomers, we're very quirky with our naming. We often come up with the name first and then we build the technology after <laughs> the fact, right? It. So the Mir Karoo Array Telescope, it's a, it's a telescope built in South Africa and it's the principle of it is a precursor telescope to this square kilometre array, which, which is also going to be, have. we're going to build one as well. And actually, we've got our own uh, precursor. Get, do you want to know what ours are? No, tell me. We have actually two names um, because it does a, a two different surveys on on this telescope, and they're called Dingo and Emu. Dingo and Emu. <laughs> Did so I see? <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, all of ours have that that Australian uh, wildlife okay. uh, twang to them. So the evolutionary map of the universe and the deep investigation of neutral gas origins. Dingo. See, and I would emu. have said that if, if you know I'd known a little bit more. Yeah, that's right. So if anyone ever says that astronomy is uh, filled with jargon and whatnot, they obviously haven't spoken to a real astronomer because all we're doing is naming them after quick. We have animals. to have a bit of fun with it. That's, That's what it's right. about. We do have to have a little bit of fun. Okay, now bring it all together for us. Yeah, so, okay, so we've got two telescopes built on two continents. South Africa. South Africa and Western Australia. Well, the continent, uh, the, the state of Western Australia. And the idea is that we're going to be observing the universe through radio waves. Between the, each of us. Between each of us. And, yeah. and part of the reason there is that uh, when we're in the night time, South Africa's in daytime, and when South Africa's in the nighttime, we're in daytime, so, so you can always be observing the universe gotcha. at any given time. And so if something exciting, something goes bang, something goes explosion, we can point one of these radio telescopes at it, because radio emission from the universe is really looking at things like black holes, it's looking at its supernova explosions, it's looking at all the really extreme physics that's going on in the universe. Can I just ask one quick question? I've, do you have telescopes that can look at the universe in a, in a wide screen? So if you see something go off, you can... Going closer on on it. You have asked an excellent question because only just in the it's last month. It's only because I complimented you. That's, that's why. Right, I said that's that. right. <laughs> Here I'm complimenting you now in return. Okay. We've just launched, not we, not myself, of course, but uh, astronomers have launched the Euclid Telescope in the last month. And we've we've spent a lot of time on this program talking about James Webb Space Telescope. I think we can we can put that to the side for now because we've got to talk about the Euclid Space Telescope. This is better coming up. It's a different kind of space telescope. It's it's not as sexy as the James Webb Space Telescope. In <laughs> that's that, another word an astronomer uses. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In that, it, yeah, that's a very technical term there, sexy telescopes. Um, it doesn't take these beautiful images that we've, of course, seen from the James Webb Space Telescope, these exploding stars and these beautiful dust screens, and etc. It takes surveys of the universe. It has a huge field of view, and as you mentioned, something that has a big field of view, so it can look at a huge portion of the sky at a given time, and survey, so take uh, a, a census of what's happening in the universe, because Something like the James Webb Space Telescope would take you forever to try to look at every single portion of the universe because of how detailed it is and how narrow-focused it is. It takes very precise, very uh, well-resolved images, very beautiful images, but only of small patches. So this new telescope is going to be able to take a wider look at everything. I get that. And would the detail be as good as the James Webb? No, that's where where the the trade-off comes. So either takes... Uh, very detailed observations 
and re- refine yourself to a small field of view or you do the opposite. You take a very big field of view but you lose out on the detail. But we're okay with that because what we really want to do, what we really care about is uh, finding the positions and the distances and the shapes of galaxies with the Euclid telescope. So what comes back, what information comes back to when you're surveying like that? Right. Does it come, what, in what form does it come this, back? Oh, you just, you're on fire today. So <laughs> th- what's really crucial, and I, I can't believe I've never talked about this on, on this show, something called a redshift. This is really crucial. It's a fundamental thing that we do in astronomy, and if without it, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. Redshift, I guarantee you, you've experienced before in everyday life. You can think about it like uh, when a car goes by you, right, and and the sound that it makes, it sounds... Mm, yeah, it that high pitch, low pitch, yeah. that's redshift in action, or, or what we call Doppler oh. shift. What's happening is those sound waves, they're being compressed as they're coming towards you, right? That car is coming towards you, compressing those sound waves, making them higher frequency, high, low, and as it yeah. leaves, those wavelengths get stretched out, and they're, they're, they're going to a lower frequency. But light does the same. Light actually does exactly the same. Now, of course, those were sound waves with the car, but light is being stretched by things that are moving away from us. Oh, so you can you can tell that there's positioning is changing. Exactly, exactly. Ah, by so, that so you're frequency hearing the sound of light waves. changing. How's we're it, how's we're it actually still through? looking at them. They're still light. Even though we talk about radio waves, it's still light. Uh, we don't. We try not to conflate that with the radio in our car, which uses radio waves. But of course, uh, it's not the sound, but still the light of those galaxies being being. Uh, so okay, if you get the change in sound there, which means something's moving away, you are assuming there's some action going on there. Exactly. We assume that galaxy is moving away from us. Why would it be doing that? Because, and this is crucial, the universe is expanding. I think we all know this. We know that from the Big Bang, everything sort of uh, uh, stretched from the Big Bang, expanded, and is still expanding to this day. And it's expanding at an accelerated rate. So what it was expanding at a rate of a billion years ago is now an increased rate from then. So it's expanding at an increased rate. Is there an end to to our universe? Well, we don't think so. And this is is a question. We don't know if from here on the universe will continue to accelerate, accelerate, accelerate and expand to a point where everything is so far from everything else that everything sort of ceases to uh, give off heat and, and cool yeah, down. We call this saying? the big freeze. Oh, dear. Because everything gets so far from one another that it, it, everything cools down and becomes Well, for it to be expanding as much as it is now, it's taken a billion years to get to that point? Exactly. Okay, so, what? okay, but you're thinking perhaps mm, it might... Well, mm, what happens 10 billion years from now, right. perhaps it goes the other way around. At some point, it reverses, okay. right, that, that what we call this thing called dark energy stops pushing everything away and and gravity takes over and everything reverses and comes back in and cleverly we call this the big crunch right again astronomers with our clever names (laughs) we mere mortals okay cannot get our head around the universe if there's an end of it Mm -hmm. or how is infinity i mean what what is that do you how do you you explain it how do i reconcile it with my own brain well that's that's part of the problem with astrophysics is that you really have to stop thinking like a human you don't have to there's no analogies <laughs> we have on earth right to to what's happening out there in no, space there really not. is nothing and it, it becomes very difficult oh, to okay. explain it i try my best of course but um yeah. i think the way i have to reconcile it with myself is that there's a continual flow of the universe in time and we're just somewhere in the middle maybe we're at the start maybe we're at the end we don't know where we are in the timeline of the universe but we are existing here oh, and gosh. i think at some point, the universe will continue on the way it's continuing, or it will, as I said, do this reverse and it'll crunch and come back in on itself, perhaps creating a second or a third or a fifth or 
an infinitous uh, Big Bang occurring. There's this cyclic wow. nature to the universe happening. This is a nice way to think about it, I think. Well, could you find some good good signs for us <laughs> while you're out there looking yes, at it all? Yes. It really... No, you're right. I mean, it, it, and the, the other thing, too, as we mere mortals sort of assume that we are the only planet with, with, uh, with you That's know, right. human life. With, with even any carbon yeah, life, in carbon fact. Life, we're, yeah. we're very arrogant in that way, I think, sometimes. Well, we don't know any different. We don't know any different. That's exactly right. I mean, we're progressing so much in your field That's right. of expertise, aren't we? And, and you can explain it so well. Mm-hmm. Imagine all you my all your minds getting together at a conference <laughs> precisely what we did last in the That's last two I mean. weeks yeah we, it's, it's amazing how much science you can do in just so a short amount of time apart from the new um telescope, telescope sorry yes i was mm. going to say something else then what else were you discussing yeah well i mean look these are new telescopes so a lot of the data that we're working with we've never dealt with before there's a lot of new problems we're having to solve and trying to figure out and just having everyone in the same room discussing these ideas how are we going to solve these problems right. how are we going to overcome this new data uh, the challenges that it brings these are the kind of questions we're trying to answer because we're trying to get ourselves ready for when the square kilometer array is built up and running uh, and we've already done all the technology we've tested the technology on these other telescopes these yeah. the meerkat and and uh, emu and dingo we've tested the technology it's the precursor telescopes um and and we're ready when ska hits the ground okay some few a few practical things mm. here where was that te- first telescope um invented perhaps well, what country w- where did it come from originally there was a bid to see where they were going to put these telescopes right yeah. uh, a lot of different countries went in a lot of good examples were chile uh parts of europe um Uh, So there were a lot of places on the cards for where to put these telescopes. And in fact, in the end, the two that they couldn't decide between was Australia and South Africa. And so they decided, well, why not, instead of choosing, why don't we just build two telescopes? And that's (laughs) sort of where that came about. But radio astronomy in general, so this idea of using radio waves to look at the universe, is something that's actually been around in Australia for a very long time. And I think probably astronomers in Australia were some of the pioneering uh, folks trying to develop this this technique of radio astronomy. You know, this is the sort of thing, I suppose, going into the future that the, could bring the world together mm. because you could work together on that. In Science instead does of, bring people together, I think. And yeah. Yes, that's what I was thinking, you know, yeah. certain countries. And just on that point, just getting off the conference for a second here, yeah. of course, India were a little bit excited a week or so ago. Yeah, absolutely. And wow. they have every right to be. They've just landed uh, a, a rover onto the moon. On the dark side. On the on the, on the the far side of the moon, yeah. Far side, yeah. We've well, yes. Yeah, so the, so the, the dark, dark side, side sounds terrible. At some points, uh, the far side is dark, but not at all no, times. No, yeah, no. So the far side of the moon. And yeah. you were indicating that it indicates that a, a, a smaller country could be capable of... Um, yes, universe, yes, yeah. yes. Well, of course, India is not a small country, as we're saying, but no, it, uh, no, no, a less wealthy country. And I think India and Australia are at a very similar point in there um, where their space agencies have, have grown, right? India's space agency is relatively new. Our own space agency is relatively new. And we're now getting to that point where maybe we're thinking about sending spacecraft really? out to space. Yeah, perhaps it's not the moon. Perhaps it's something like Mars. Perhaps it's uh, satellites orbiting other planets. This is the kind of thing that Australia is now starting to think about. And we've just developed a, a space agency, the ASA. And so now we've got things in place, getting ourselves ready, geared up for the next decade of space travel. How would that take uh, formation? How would that form? And where would it form? And where would the cost... Yeah, well, (laughs) a a lot of people think it should form here in WA because, frankly speaking, you know, uh, the hub for astronomy is is WA. Really, Perth is is where a lot of the astrophysics research happens in Australia. But this is slightly different. This is aeronautics. This is, um, you know, this is launching rockets. And in in ways, it is different to pure research in astrophysics. Oh, it would have to be. So I think... 
at the moment, the, the main hub will be in uh, Adelaide or centred around South Australia. And the reason for that, there's lots of good launch sites for um, rockets to well, be Well, we held. had Woomera. I, I Woomera. thought, for example, we were sending things up from there, but we weren't, were well, we? Well, it was a location for other organisations like NASA and the European Space Agency and, and um, other agencies to, to use as a launch pad for their own rockets. But it was never our own uh, rockets being launched. But now I'm talking about... Australian-built rockets, Australian-led projects being launched from Australian sites. Well, that sounds very exciting. I'm very excited for it. I, I mean, think everyone here should be as I, well. I remember in watching in black and white the landing on the moon. Yes, from you know. the, the Parkes Telescope. You yes. know, we think about the, how crucial that was for that the Apollo missions and exactly. the, the dish indeed. That was Australia's one of Australia's biggest roles in space exploration. It was critical for that, that mission to go ahead. Yeah. And here you have Australia at the kind of at the centre well, of Well, it was a long time ago, 40-odd years ago, I think. It was, but, yeah, even. But, you know, when you, it really, when you think about it, it's gone pretty quickly. It has. And how much advanced everything has come That's right, exactly. Yeah. And now we're sort of, you know, even countries like India are now sending things to the moon yes. and eventually we'll be sending humans back to the moon and then onwards to Mars. And I think that's now the big focus. It sounds like a very expensive project to go ahead with. Right. Is this, is this essential for humanity, do you think, to find out what is going on? Yeah, well, it's, it's two questions because firstly, is it expensive? Well, yeah, it's expensive, but, you know, it used to be that entire nations had to throw huge amounts of money at these things, but now we're seeing private organisations being able to actually do these endeavours. So Very true. Like SpaceX, uh, Virgin, a few other, Blue, Blue Origins. These are the kind of corporations who are now having the ability to, to launch things. So actually the expenses have gone down, relatively speaking. Makes sense, yeah. And it's because of, you know, the technology has gotten better, reusable rockets, etc, etc. The second point there, is it important? Well, we don't know what we're going to find. This yeah. is this is the great thing about, and sometimes the bane of, of science is that we don't know the result. And if we knew it, we wouldn't be doing this. It's exploring, right, exactly. isn't it? But along the way, you know, when we're trying to solve the biggest questions in the universe, we along the way end up solving the smallest problems here on earth that is and that's what's so crucial about science mm. and that's what's so hard i think sometimes to uh, convince of you know government agencies and, and funding agencies that the answers aren't there yet we can't give you the the, the results because we don't know what those results are going to be what role are you playing in all of this personally uh, probably a small cog in all oh, of I it i think you're um, doing a fair work <laughs> yeah i i well Technically speaking, really what I do is I join these telescopes like Meerkat, the, these radio telescopes, with what we currently have in the optical, what our eyes see. So we get really different bits of information about the universe when we look at things through telescope, nominal telescopes, the ones our eyes see, and these radio telescopes. And it, for the longest time, these two fields have been separate. You know, you're either a radio astronomer or you're an optical astronomer. And my role is about branching those two things together. Yeah. And a lot of what I was doing at the conference last week was getting people excited about the prospects of joining their radio and data with, with the optical stuff that we have, mm. uh, bringing, bridging that together. And that, that's sort of what I see myself as, this sort of ombudsman for uh, or this, this, you know, connecting bridge for those two very disparate worlds. In, even in astronomy itself, a niche field has its own niche subfields. You were in your happy place, weren't you? I had a great time <laughs> there. It's just so excellent to be travelling around with, with other people that are like-minded you know, like yeah. and, and, and just just having a great time. Would you, have you ever, as a young man, which you still are, of course, ever had Despite the grey hairs now well, starting to prop... There's only on two. My, yeah, there's two, maybe three. So you're getting self-conscious about it, don't <laughs> no, you worry. No. <laughs> have you ever wanted to go into the universe yourself? I, this is a great question. I once put my name down for something called the Mars One Project. The one in Mars One is actually one way. Uh, so <laughs> you had thought about it. I you? put my name down, and and I think one I got way. through one round, and then started to realise, oh, this is getting a bit serious. So I, I withdrew from that. Um, 
Because I think I'm more valuable down here on Earth. I think you are. <laughs> but just define that for me. One-way Mars trip. I mean, That's were right. they saying they're going to leave you up there? Yeah, exactly right. Because it, it's too difficult cur- currently with our current thinking um, of, of space travel to bring people back. <laughs> and you'd think that's because of getting fuel and, you know, taking off. But it's actually Gosh. the health conditions. It's once you've spent enough time on Mars, your heart starts to work less strongly and it's oh. not able to handle the gravity on Earth when you come back. So it's actually a medical condition that we have to uh, How solve. How long ago was that? Well, we've never sent anyone to Mars. We've but, never. But, okay, but they were put out. But the we know this of is it. the case that we've we've had people, uh, uh, you know, being in in microgravity out on yes. the, the International Space Station, and and we know that people suffer from these uh, heart conditions when they've spent time in lower gravity. Now, if you spend time on lower gravity for an extended period of time, you just it's very difficult to bring that person back to of Earth. Course. Very heavy. But they gravity. came up with the concept how many years ago? Oh, that's been going on for now. Uh, 15 years. 15 you know, years. The Mars One project has been in the works for a long time and in fact now from that has spawned all these other projects yes, from other course, private organisations. We've learned from it, haven't and we? We've learned from it and then we're actually, you know, we're making progress from it. I don't want to put any yeah. predictions out there but I think probably in this decade we will see humans going to at least the moon and, and yeah, Mars in the next decade. Thank you, decade, right. Thank you, right. Which is very exciting for us. I saw one of those films, a conspiracy theorist movies, uh-huh. rerun the <laughs> other day of Capricorn. Okay. <laughs> where people of the, the conspiracy theorists have said they never really landed. They were just mm. taken off the spaceship and put into a studio, and that's what this film was about. And I, thought, <laughs> I had a bit of a laugh about watching it, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Do you, do you want to hear my, my one-minute answer to, to, yep. to that? I think... It's, there's one thing you can say that, that debunks all conspiracy theories with the, with the moon landing, and it's the Russians. Yeah. The Russians have never once, no single authority in Russian, Roscosmos, the, the NASA equivalent in Russia, uh, or any agency or the government has ever claimed that the US didn't no, land they on haven't, the moon. Now, they? you have to appreciate the fact that now this was the <laughs> space race. This was, you know, who could get onto the moon first? And the Russians poured mi- millions and millions of dollars yeah. into trying to, you know, uncover the truth of, of what happened, and not once have they claimed otherwise. <laughs> and, and I think that if you can believe that the Russians and the US will cooperate or coerce on such a thing then you'll believe anything (laughs) a very good theory there you go good on you that's my two cents well welcome home you've had a long (laughs) trip overnight and it's fantastic to have you back and get back there and solve the problems of the universe okay thank you dr robin call